Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. I'm Moira Forbes, Executive Vice President of Forbes Media and publisher of Forbes Woman. I spend my time overseeing brand initiatives for Forbes around the world and spearheading our content focused on women in business and leadership. For me, it was always about showing people that I deserve to be there, not just deserve to be there, but I, I could add greater value and work harder and smarter than anyone else around me. And so sometimes that challenge of having to fight people's expectations actually can force you to build skills that are invaluable. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Moira Forbes represents four generations of publishers and is currently the executive vice president of Forbes Media. A successful woman in business and leadership, she works to promote the same in other women through her media platforms. Moira, you grew up as one of five girls. How did you find your voice? Oh, that is a great question. You have to find your voice uh, when you're one of five girls because the noise level is so loud. I was number four in my family, and when you're one of five, you're defined by your rank in, in your family. And my younger sister was nine years younger, born, uh, born when I was nine. So for me, it was you know really about just you know, making sure I, I knew that my voice was being heard. Because when you're, you know, the fourth of five, you can easily get lost in the craziness of the household. And so you learn pretty quickly about what your priorities are, how to get people's attention, how to how to get what you need, and strategize in terms of the mix of all the other siblings. I read your mom didn't allow you and your sisters to pierce your ears till you were 18. Is that true? And what was she it, trying to teach I, you? I, so. That is a very good question. I still ask her to this day, and, and she doesn't have a great answer. You know, she she wanted us to to be adults to make those types of decisions in our life. You know, she never had her ears pierced. So for her, it was, you know, a big decision to do something and and to move forward and, I mean, to literally put holes in your ears. And she, you know, my parents were very strict around, you know, what they would allow us to do. um, But they were also very understanding of what was appropriate for age and and pacing that for us. So on my 18th birthday, I did get my ears pierced. So that was a, a rite of passage for us. When you were young, people such as Elizabeth Taylor would visit. What was that like? You know, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a family where we, you know, always had this opportunity to engage with really interesting and dynamic people across, you know, the world of politics and entertainment. But when you're a young kid, you know, I was a kid, you know that they're important, but you don't really know why. And so, you know, looking back at these experiences, I'm like, wow, that was so crazy that we did this with this person or that with that person. Um, and what a special, you know, thing that was to get to learn from them and, and, and you know, experience their great personalities. But when you're a young kid, they're just like everybody else. But you know, you always know there was something special about these people because the way that everyone, you know, reacted to them and, and picked up on them. And Elizabeth Taylor was a great example of, you know, a woman who was iconic, but at the end of the day, she was so kind and warm and sweet and lovely. And so we really gravitated toward her uh, over the years that we got to know her. How do people treat you differently when they hear your last name? When you have a last name that's also associated with a brand, people come into a conversation or an interaction with you with preloaded expectations 
preloaded ideas of who you are, how you grew up, what your values are. And so one of the challenges has always been, you know, yes, there are sometimes positive things that, that people, you know, associate it, but sometimes they, they come in with perceptions that aren't necessarily reality. And you spend so much of your time often fighting perceptions that people have or trying to prove that you aren't who you think they think you are, that it can be tough. Because again, when it's, when there's a brand associated with your name, people are just predisposed to think certain things. And so you struggle a little bit more to be able to have people to get, get to know you, who you are, um, your personality and your values. So that's always a challenge. And you know, sometimes it, it can create, you know, unique dynamics to a relationship where you learn very early on, are people really wanting to get to know you? Or is there something within the relationship that they're trying to get out of it for their own gain? And so very quickly, you get accustomed to navigating those. And so when you do find people that you trust, and that people who want to be friends and, and work with you for, for the right reasons, you really gravitate and build those relationships in a meaningful way. What's a perception you had to move past or try to get people to move past? Oftentimes, especially because I work at Forbes, there is a perception that I didn't have to work hard to prove myself. And it's true. You know, I didn't have a traditional job interview. I, I you know, didn't have to go to the through the regular HR channel. But there's a perception that you can do whatever you want to do or you don't necessarily have to work hard or prove yourself or that everything in life comes easy to you. And so for me... It was always about showing people that I deserved to be there, not just deserved to be there, but I, I could add greater value and work harder and smarter than anyone else around me. And so sometimes that challenge of having to fight people's expectations actually can force you, you know, to build skills that are invaluable to navigating your career. And so I just always felt I had to, to prove myself and show people I could add value and that I deserved to be there and that it was something important to me and not just, you know, my work or my career or something something that I just wrote off um, as as a side thing. Is it worth trying to prove yourself to some people in so far as, you know, is it possible to change some people's minds? It's it's never possible. And I, I would never say you should go out and, and always try and prove yourself because that's exhausting. And to your point, it's, you know, it's a lose-lose situation sometimes. But I do think in order, you know, when you are building your career and, and navigating relationships, you have to, to identify how to connect with people, how to make them want to work with you, collaborate with you, and build on each other's success. So for me to be successful at the work I did, I knew I had to build those re relationships and try and build a bridge and push past some of those perceptions. You're never going to convince everybody, and it's exhausting if you try. You don't need to always get people to like you, but you want to have them respect you, and that's always been my ultimate goal. How did you establish your own identity when your family is so well known? That's always been uh, uh, a challenge. And I think, again, when you work in a business where you have family members around you, it's really easy for people to have a set of expectations or a mold around which they identify you. And it's, you know, I worked in a business where my you know, grandfather was very iconic and a larger than life figure. And I, and, you know, I worked along and I still work alongside my father, who's this great sort of policy thinker and economic mind. And people always will compare you to them or think that, that you have those qualities. And you oftentimes spend early on, at least I spent a lot of time thinking about what I wasn't and the skills that I didn't have and how I wasn't like them. And over the course of, of my career, I realized what I thought were weaknesses, you know, the ways that I wasn't like them were actually my greatest strengths. And that in order 
to be successful in order to, to do the work that I love doing, I had to own it and own that I was different. And it was okay if I, you know, almost failed out of Econ 101, you know, much to my father's dismay because, you know, that just wasn't who I was. So you have to be authentic to yourself own it. And that's where your greatest power lies. And if you always fight it, ultimately, that's going to be the undermining of you doing what you want to do and you being able to have impact in the work that you do. What's your advice to someone who is somewhat uh, in the shadow or their, their parent fault has a, a long shadow that they're trying to move out of? What would you say to them? Stop trying so hard to move out of it. Again, you get stuck in that trap of, of always comparing yourself to them when everybody else is also comparing you. And you have to really understand what you love to do, where your strengths are, where your passions are, and be confident in that versus always feeling like you're, you're not measuring up to, to someone else. And again, people will always come in with those set of expectations. It's, a, it's just part of the game. But you have to find where your strengths are and how you move past that and not get, you know, not get weighed down by those expectations because it's 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 just exhausting. What do you say to people when they say, like, why are you working? Uh, yeah. Well, uh, why am I not working? Um, again, it's, you know, we always grew up with this really strong sense of values that you had to work hard at what you did, that, you know, everyone is get, given a set of resources and experiences. And how do you make the most of those to have impact in the world, whether that be in a professional career, whether that be as a mother, as a volunteer, you know, no matter what, my parents were always, you know, very welcoming and embracing of, you know, find your passion and work hard and and build trust and look to have impact. And so for me, you know, it was never a question of whether I would work. It was never a question of whether I could work. You know, we were always taught to financially, you know, be financially independent and to build our own careers and build our own lives. And I had, you know, high expectations around, you know, what I wanted to, to do in this world. And, and I've, I've been given a set of, you know, extraordinary, you know, resources and assets. So it's really a sense of responsibility that I feel on how do I build that? When you've got generations before you who have built something incredible that you respect, your job is to help bring that to life in a new dimension in a new way. So it was never a question for me and of, of whether I would work. It was just how and in what way would I channel you know, my passions and, and my commitment to getting the job done no matter what it was. How can you make sure you're using the most of your resources? How do you do that? I think we all have we all have the opportunity to have impact, and it can be in big and small ways. We all have sort of a portfolio of resources, you know, in, in our lives. And sometimes it's the experiences that you've had. Sometimes it's financial resources. Sometimes it's connected to your job. And it's really about living your life more consciously around how you can shift the small things that you're doing day to day in your life to be able to add value or have impact around things that are important to you. So I feel very, very passionately about the work that I do around mentoring other women or or creating different communities. And that's something as simple as carving out a half hour in my week where I'm happy to jump on a call with a particular woman who's navigating an inflection point in her career. It's a half an hour. It's a small thing. But it's like pennies in a jar that add up over time. So you have to understand what's important to you. How can you use what you have? And, and time is the greatest equalizer. You know, it's an equal, equal opportunity commodity. We all have 24 hours in a day. And just figuring out how can you make small shifts that can help you do the work that's important to you. 
When you got married, I read you never spent more than two consecutive weeks with your husband. What's your advice to long-distance couples who are suddenly together more often? I mean, naivety is like it was just – I look back on that time and I just thought, you know, how crazy was that? So for background, my husband is Australian. And when I met him, he was moving back. I met him here in New York and he was moving back a few years later to finish a residency in Australia. So we spent three and a half years dating – and we're married long distance. And Australia, literally, you know, we got the atlas out, my family, when I, you know, when we got engaged, when I got engaged to my husband. And there was not a place on earth that was farther away. It was three plane rides away. And, you know, for us, pretty quickly, to make that long distance relationship work, we had to zero in on what our values were. You know, there was none of this time that we could waste, you know, getting to know each other over dinner and small chit-chat. And, you know, when you know that there's a time clock on when someone's leaving and that you have to travel literally 20 eight hours door to door to see them, you have to identify, do they have the values that you have? Do they want the same things in life that you do? And it really actually makes it a lot easier to, to clear away what, what the priorities are and to know whether that person is aligned with who you are. And like anything in life, you know, flying 28 hours in a seat that's, you know, teeny and your legs are crushed for, for three flights is not, not easy, but you find a way to make it work. Like anything, if you want it enough, you can always be creative and make it happen. AI may be the most important new computer technology ever, but AI needs a lot of processing speed, and that gets expensive fast. Upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is the single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash wallstreet, oracle.com slash wallstreet. Got a question about finance or business? Then write podcasts at dowjones.com. Please include your first name and hometown, and we may read your email in a future episode. Again, that's podcasts at dowjones.com. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal. Besides your cousin, I read you're the only one from the fourth generation to go into the family business. How come you think there's not more family members involved? So I think now I'm, I'm the only one now in, in, the, in the business. I think first, you know, there weren't, there weren't a ton of kids in the fourth generation. But also, too, we were always encouraged you have to follow what you're passionate about, you know, what gives you energy. And the greatest disservice you can ever do to a family business or a business that you're working for, regardless of, of you know, who, who runs it, is, is to not feel a sense of energy and passion toward the work that you're doing. Because, you know, at the end of the day, when you have a brand that has, you know, values and has a higher purpose, if you're not committed to the work that you're doing, you're always going to be falling short. It doesn't help the audience that you reach. You know, for us, it didn't help, you know, would never have helped the community that Forbes reaches. We, you know, have a great community of employees. If, if you're not committed, then, then you know, you're not helping anyone to do the job that they want to do or fulfill on that higher purpose that we've always had at Forbes. What if your parents pressuring you, though? Ne- never pressure because, again, the worst thing that you can do is put somebody in a position where they're not happy. They're going to be miserable, and it's going to only waste time and energy and resources. And very early on in my life, 
I had a passion for media. I had a passion for business. I mean, it sounds so crazy to think about it in the past, but you know, for my you know, first I think I was seven or eight years old, and for my birthday, I asked for a cash register. I loved the idea that you could create a store and buy and sell things and 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 literally earn money. I mean, that to me was just boggling, you know, mind boggling that you could and earn money. I you know, I use air quotes because, you know, when you're eight years old, your inventory is limited to what's in your parents' house that they already bought and your customer base being immediate family. But still I always had this passion and this passion for stories and passion for business. And so it was aligned with who I was. And I always think if you reflect back on your childhood, what you love to do, oftentimes that's a really good indicator of where your passions are. And so for me, it was, you know, it there was this great sync between who I was and my interests in the family business. But if it wasn't, you know, I never would have stepped foot inside the Forbes offices to work. What's your advice for navigating a parent-child relationship at work? I was really lucky because I never reported to my father directly. I never reported to a family member directly. And what that I think allowed to happen was this you know, more natural progression of, of a career. I was very fortunate that I had amazing bosses and mentors who appreciated the unique dynamic of, of the relationship I had to the company. But they were in the roles to give me the feedback, and they were empowered to give me the feedback and help guide me in my career. And it was never, it was never, you know, my father doing it directly. And so, what it allowed us to do is develop a business relationship where we talked about the big picture. We were able to use our unique vantage points on a on a situation to problem solve. But it was never someone saying, you know, why aren't you in at this time, or you know, you should have done this this that way. Because you know, my father was very clear that he, you know, he felt it was important for me to to find my own voice, to make my own mistakes and face the consequences. And that's why, you know, I started out as, you know, I started, you know, answering telephones and opening doors in our London office. I started, you know, I worked my way through the ranks because I had to build experience. I had to build knowledge. Um, And that was the other thing I would say about, you know, working in a family business. I don't always think it's a great idea when I see parents put them, put their kids into a position that they're not ready to be in. And I'm going to say not a stretch position, but oftentimes I see kids coming out of college and they're put into, you know, managing a big team or an executive role. And it's, you know, sometimes it's it's really hard because you're not giving them the freedom to learn the ropes and to learn the hard way to develop those life skills. And um, sometimes you're giving them more responsibility than they're ready for in the sense that you know, sometimes just years on the job and, and navigating really diverse experiences are going to give you the lessons that empower you, you know, to take on greater roles as you ascend in your career. How do you advance an established brand? There's, you know, right now in this world of, of disruption and, and entrepreneurship and brands literally being created overnight, what's so important when you have, you know, the opportunity to work with an established brand. And last year we celebrated our centennial anniversary. We were 100, 100 years old. And sometimes age is a liability in this time of rapid change. But it always comes back to what's your highest purpose? What business are you in? You know, for, at Forbes, we're always in the business of helping people succeed in business and in life. And this higher purpose around, you know, the power of, of capitalism and, and entrepreneurship and free markets to help the world and help people and communities advance. And so what that allows you to do is, is not be shackled by the way that you've always been doing something. You know, we were, people always defined us as a magazine, but we were never defined 
defined by pieces of paper. We are defined by the value that we bring to our audience. And that really frees you up to think about, you know, and now you have to think about it each and every day. How do I best fulfill that brand promise? And it can look like very, you know, very different ways at, at different moments in time. But if you have that root and that anchor, it really helps you figure out how to leverage the new opportunities and innovations and technologies to build on your brand rather than, you know, let your past, um, you know, handcuff you and prevent you from, you know, taking advantage of the opportunities that exist. Do you think there's going to be print magazines in five years? I, I do, at least for the time being. First of all, there's there's never we've never actually had a higher print readership than you know than ever before, which which people are often surprised by. But it's a very different relationship with your readers, and it's a very different editorial experience, and it still has huge value, and also. It still means something to be on the cover of Forbes. You know, that is an aspiration. That is the defining moment for people. You know, you it's very different than say you're gonna be on the homepage of the site for two hours versus the cover of Forbes. So it means something. It's it's defining for our brand, it's defining for business, and it's forced us to really think about, you know, what is a, a magazine experience and what's the editorial that works there versus online on your phones through Snapchat. So I think for the foreseeable future, it's here to stay, uh, which is always always great because I still I still do love a print magazine. You said if women can't see it, they can't be it. What do you mean by that? Oftentimes, I think in your life, you need to have role models of possibility. People to show you that it can be done, whether it be you know women or men or, or whoever, it's so important to have role models in your life. And, and Warren Buffett has said this uh, many times, and, and he shared this at a philanthropy, or a philanthropy conference that he helps co-host. He said, everyone in their life needs to have heroes. And you need to have people who, who give you hope that there's a road to, ahead to achieving what you want to achieve, that they give you inspiration, that it's possible. And when you're having your darkest hours of doubt or frustration, and you want to give up, knowing that other people have done it, maybe in different ways, in different careers, in different industries, just gives you that small, you know, motivation to help help you to keep keep moving forward. You need to find you need to find inspiration. It's it can be really tough when you have big goals or you want to do something different or or just even getting through your day. And so for me, when I see other people have done, you know, certain things and navigated obstacles and, and opportunities. It's that extra energy to, to keep moving forward. You said women need to network their finances. What do you mean by that? Well, so often talking about money is, is a taboo topic. I mean, when was the last time you had an open and honest conversation around money? You feel that you shouldn't, right? That, 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 that it, it you know, can be a dirty word talking about money. You know, at the same time, though, when you look at areas of our life, we so often go to our network for every piece of information, right? What car to buy, you know, what person to, to, what voice to listen to, what to read, what to, you know, how to exercise. And the one area of our life that we don't network, that we don't tap into our community a lot of times is money. And if you think about the people around you, whether it be the people that you know, your friends, your colleagues, you know, they have sets of experiences and knowledge that can add huge, huge value to your own knowledge bank. And you tap into them for everything else about your finances. So you need to find the language and and the ways to start having those conversations to talk about all the different aspects of your relationship to your finances and and how to navigate the different dynamics of, of money and what it means in your life because it's empowering and it's a wasted resource if you don't find ways and there are more opportunities to, to have these conversations and benefit from the knowledge of others. 
Some person might say, well, that sounds great, but it just seems so awkward or a little too intrusive. So how do I start this conversation with a friend and not feel weird about it? First, what conversation do you want to have, right? I mean, it's going to be weird if you talk about how much do you make, you know, what did you spend on this, you know, whatever it may be, because... You know, because pe- money is very personal and, and people's money reality oftentimes can be very different than, than you think it is in one way or another. But what I've found is is taking, you know, these financial moments um, that aren't necessarily defined by how much money you make or you have and, you know, getting best practices on those. And that could be, you know, things like saving for college, um, um, things like, you know, you know, uh, inheritance planning or, you know, what you do, you know, if you pass away or what you do with a spouse or how you navigate a 401k. I mean, these are sort of basic moments that we're all, you know, all going to experience around how do you save? What are the small ways, the big ways? You know, how do you how do you create a will? And those are sometimes doorways to be able to open the conversation where, again, you're not talking about I make X or this, you know, this is how much I have saved, but it's what's your best practice here? What did you do? What personal finance goal has investing in the stock market helped you achieve? It's helped me achieve a sense of of security and empowerment in that the stock market can be daunting, right? And I think you have perceptions of investing in the markets as something that you need to have a lot of knowledge and that you need to know everything. Or sometimes it can feel murky and, and you don't know how to do it and it can feel too risky. But like anything around your finances, it's finding out the basic knowledge and tool sets and finding small steps to start to engage, to start to you know make it a habit in your everyday life. And for me, the relationship to finances is all about a feeling, a sense of security. And so when I've been able to take on certain aspects of financial health or feel like I've hit a milestone or I've planned in a way that for me helps me sort of think about all the rainy days that could happen in your future, that gives me security. And so for me, finances mean security. And so that's, you know, the lens of success through which I think about all the different iterations around financial planning. What's the best financial advice you ever heard? Two things. One, um, you're always going to have a rainy day. And so often with money, I think, and finances, people wait till that rainy day to ha- happens to be, you know, to address a situation. And there's small things that you can do right now, day in and day out, that can help you plan for those unforeseen events because they're going to happen. You know, they will, life will always throw you curveballs. So what can you do right now in this moment to help plan for those in a way that's, you know, comfortable for you, in a way that's accessible? Um, and the other thing is start now. I always see such a huge con- disconnect um, because, you know, we talk, we worry about money. You know, we know that we need to, especially women, have better knowledge, uh, be more engaged. But there's such a disconnect between our financial health and every other aspect of our health, right? We will do everything that we can for our, our kids to make sure they're healthy or, you know, the people in our lives. We will make sure that, you know, the work that we're doing, you know, in our jobs, that we create five-year, you know, strategy plans, that we create, you know, goals and, and make sure that our business is healthy. But so often we don't actually do anything for our own financial health. And I talk to so many women who just let those financial statements, you know, pile up and uh, don't actually ever open them. And they say they don't have time or they're too stressed. But if you have time, you know, I was talking to a friend a couple of months ago, and she was saying, I don't have time to do, you know, I don't have time to take this on. I said, look, you have great blonde hair. You have like fantastic highlights. I know that takes you four hours every six weeks. If you have time to like have great hair, you have 
10 minutes, 15 minutes every week to do one small thing. So know that a rainy day is going to happen, but also know that you have to make it a priority and budget time, 15 minutes, make it super easy. Open those financial statements, take small steps, because those small steps are what build to your long-term financial success. Time now for your secrets. I'm Moira Forbes, Executive Vice President of Forbes Media and publisher of Forbes Woman. My money secret is invest in your 401k and do it now. It's the biggest untapped resource for financial planning, and it's easy. So let it do the heavy lifting and do it right now. This episode was produced by Tanya Bustos with special help from J.R. Whalen. John Wardock is the executive producer of WSJ Podcasts. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at DowJones.com or on Twitter. Use hashtag Secrets of Wealthy Women. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.